And so I do a confession to make about uh, concerning last week's sermon. Uh, last week I spent like half an hour talking about how uh, Philemon did not know who Paul was and Paul didn't know who Philemon was. Uh, I can't actually tell you that for sure. So that is my confession. I don't actually know that for sure. Uh, that may or may not be true. Okay? Um, the way that I read it makes it seem like Paul did not know Philemon personally. The way that I interpret it, uh, it seems like Philemon came to Christ uh, you know, during the big revivals and the big uh, conversions in Ephesus and Colossae. And that he came to Christ uh, because of the church that was already there. <coughs> and within that movement, he became influential and became the head of the house church in Colossae. But for all we know, they could have met personally. Paul may have ministered to him personally, and been his personal pastor. Uh, maybe not personal pastor, but you know, known his name and known his face. Uh, but here's the truth. The truth is, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Uh, in fact, there is a lot we don't know about Philemon. There's a lot we don't know about Paul's relationship to Philemon or even the circumstances surrounding this letter that we're reading. You know, when we, f we find that in our reading and examining and treasuring of the Bible, we are often left with many questions unanswered. We are often met with uh, holes that have yet to be filled. <coughs> We are, met, you know, we are left wondering, left questioning. And we long to know, right? We long to know, but we <coughs> cannot know. We cannot know. Uh, it's kind of like a child riding in the car and saying, are we there yet? The child has no idea. <laughs> how far a mile is, how far 10 miles is. The parent gives the child an answer. That answer is too big for him, too vast for him, too wonderful for him. But the parent knows, right? The parent knows it's approximately 200 more times of them asking that question until they arrive at the destination. Here's what we do know about the Bible. For all the things that we don't know, here's what we do know. The Word of God, as God himself has presented it to us, is sufficient and is able and profitable for our complete satisfaction and joy and peace. You know, if we could know all there was to know about God, then he would not be God. Even when we meet him in eternity, there will still be questions that we have about God. Because great is his presence and name, greater than we could ever imagine. But here's the wonderful thing. God has revealed himself to a blind and deaf people in an act of immeasurable grace. He revealed himself, light to the darkness, first by the prophets, and then by his son, Jesus Christ, as it says in Hebrew 1. And so, 
us knowing even what we know now, even though there may be questions, even though there may be holes and doubts, what we do know is sufficient for us, and it is a grace and a blessing to us. And so what do we know? What do we know about Philemon? <coughs> Last week, as I said, um, what we do know is that Philemon was rich. Philemon was a rich man, probably a very influential man, probably lived in Colossae, and he for sure hosted a house church. And what else we know about him is that he had, or has, or had, or had, he has a bondservant, aka a slave, named Onesimus. He has a slave named Onesimus. So Philemon is a slave owner. And he owns a slave who we know as Onesimus. And Paul writes this in verse 10, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And so what we can gather from that is that Paul preached the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus somehow found his way to Rome, found Paul. Paul preached the gospel to him, and then Onesimus became a Christian. Not only a Christian, but a Christian who is very useful to Paul's ministry. <coughs> but here's the thing. Onesimus is with Paul. He's in Rome. He's clearly not in Colossae, and clearly, that therefore, not with his master, Philemon. And so what we could presume is that Onesimus, the slave, is in fact a runaway slave. He is a runaway slave. Given the course of history in the world and in this country, <coughs> Slavery, obviously, is a very, very dark stain on the picture of humanity as a whole, right? And thank goodness that we are in an age where um, <coughs> uh, slavery seems like such a historical concept but we are also broken at the slavery that still exists in this world in the form of trafficking and um, sexual abuse and kidnapping and things like that. Um, and so today, even today, we are still fighting for uh, justice in this regard, in this realm, right? Uh, but Paul, as he writes this letter, and in fact, in most of his letters, Paul seems generally disinterested in upending social convention. Uh, at least for the sake of upending social convention. Paul, in his letters, and even here in Philemon, seems not at all interested in changing the way of the world, of fixing culture, of changing laws, or um, being an activist uh, for the sake of activism, activism, for the sake of changing laws. Um, but it doesn't mean that he did not care about the injustices that were happening in his culture and in his world. I'm not going to say that Paul was a straight-up abolitionist, but uh, 
he goes about addressing these social issues in, his, in a very Pauline way, right? Because what, what could he have said to Philemon as he writes this letter? <coughs> Paul could have said, you know, Onesimus is with me. You should free him. Free this man. He could have said this. Free this man. Paul is a man of authority. His words carry weight, especially in the early church. He is within his rights as a pastor, as an apostle, to command this of Philemon. Free this slave of yours. Free all your slaves. <coughs> and yet Paul does not command Philemon anything, but he appeals. He does not command Philemon, but rather appeals to him in verse 8 and 9. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I could tell you this, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. <clears throat> what he could have said was, free this man. What he could have said was, do as I tell you to do, do the right thing. What, what he said instead was, I am sending him back to you. I'm sending him back to you. This slave that you have, I don't know how he got him, uh, he has run away from you. He's obviously not with you. He's with me but I am going to send him back to you. And I think Paul, as a Roman citizen, knows what can happen to Onesimus if he sends him back to Philemon. Remember, Philemon's a runaway. <coughs> I mean, not Philemon. Onesimus is the runaway. Philemon is the master waiting for him to come back. He knows, Paul knows, what is within Philemon's rights, legal rights, to do to Onesimus. You see, later in this letter, what we'll read next week, Paul suggests that Onesimus has wronged Philemon in some way. That Onesimus perhaps even has stolen something from Philemon. <coughs> so not only has Onesimus run away, but he's run away because he has <coughs> pissed off Philemon. And maybe he's pissed him off because he's stolen something from Philemon. Paul is very aware of what could potentially happen to a runaway slave who has wronged his master coming back to his master. <coughs> but again, Paul does not seem interested in whether or not the laws will be kept. Paul seems generally uninterested in whether or not these laws will change. Paul seems generally uninterested in upending the social order of his world. What Paul is interested in is hearts and lives being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. He could not care less about the laws, the laws that are imprisoning him right now, at this very moment. He is under arrest. 
Those are not the laws that he cares about. Those are not the rules that he cares about. Those are not the opinions that he cares about. What he is interested in is whether or not someone or some people's hearts and lives have been transformed by the gospel that has been preached to them. Verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Of your own accord. If I leave him, I was going to keep him here. He's been helping me a lot, sending out these letters for me, doing some errands for me. Um, <coughs> but you know what? He is yours. But I am, I'm going to trust that you're going to do the right thing. Not because I tell you to do the right thing, but because something in you has changed and something in you will cause you to demonstrate goodness, demonstrate forgiveness, demonstrate the gospel working in your heart. <coughs> you see, when the heart is changed by the gospel, <coughs> obedience doesn't happen because there's a list of rules to follow. Gospel obedience doesn't happen because there are a set of laws that we have to obey. And goodness doesn't happen because something good will happen at the end of it. <coughs> uh, Esther and I watch a lot of dog videos. And yeah, anything, something you notice about dogs, no matter how, how much of a good boy they are, why are they the way they are? Because at the end of the day, they're going to be treats, and they're going to be snacks, and they're going to be foods, right? But uh, for us, for the heart that has been changed by the gospel, our acts of goodness don't happen because we get something nice at the end of it. Goodness happens not because we get something good at the end, but because 2,000 years ago, the only good man in history was sentenced to die a very bad man's death. We can be obedient and obedience happens in our lives not because we want to pat on the head later or because there was this group, a list of rules to follow, but obedience happens because Jesus obeyed the Father. We can be obedient because Christ was obedient to his Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross. <coughs> you see, our hearts are changed not because something happens afterward, not because something will happen to us, like admonishment or punishment or reward, but our hearts are changed because we have already obtained the prize. We have already obtained the victory. We have already obtained the reward. We have already obtained the salvation. We have already obtained the relationship. We can obey, we can be good, we can show forgiveness because all of these things have been demonstrated to us and for us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is why Paul says to him, 
<coughs> Paul says to Philemon, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. <coughs> Think about how crazy that is. You know, I, I'm saying Paul is uninterested in upending the social order of things, that he is generally uninterested in changing how culture around him works. But that sentence, no longer as a bondservant, but more as a beloved brother, that this person that you literally own is more than that, but he is your brother. He is someone you share an inheritance with. He is someone whose father you share. You know, Paul is one of those sneaky guys where he doesn't outright call for revolution or for uh, drastic social change, but he calls for things to change from inside out, within your heart, to change your entire life's paradigm, <clears throat> to change the way that you look at people, to change the way that you view yourself in the context of the world. Because you see, we will not see change in our lives. We will not see meaningful change in our lives or meaningful change in our world, in the world around us, unless first our hearts are changed. But when our hearts are changed, when the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our hearts, the change in our lives and the change in the world around us are inevitable. When the seeds of the gospel are planted in our hearts, the fruit of the Spirit will blossom. Oh, and you know the fruit of the Spirit? Damn, I failed you as a pastor. Okay. Um, <coughs> when the seeds of the gospel are planted, the fruit of love blossoms, the fruit of joy blossoms, of peace and goodness and faithfulness, and I'm missing stuff, but you, you, the, the nine fruits, you know, all the fruits of the Spirit explode in our lives, and we see that happening in us and around us. <coughs> so how do we see that in Philemon? Because, you know, we, we see Paul <coughs> writing this letter, sends this letter with Onesimus, I'm assuming. Onesimus is holding this letter. He's like, hey, boss, I got a letter for you. And he comes to Philemon, and we're like, I wonder what happened next. <coughs> Luckily, with the help of the Bible and a little bit of church history, we can get a couple of insights. Here's what we know about Onesimus. He is mentioned two times in the Bible. First, here, in the book of Philemon. And another time in Colossians, the letter to the Colossian church. So those are the two times he's mentioned, once in Philemon, once in Colossians. Here's Colossians 4, 7 through 9. Uh, Tychius, I will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. One of you. Not a slave, but one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Paul, at the end of Colossians, 
<coughs> tells them, I'm going to send these two, my two boys, all right, uh, Tychicus, Tychicus <coughs> and Onesimus, the two boys, I'm going to send them to you. They're going to tell you all about how I'm doing. I'm healthy. I'm working out. I'm feeling good. Gospel's working. They're going to tell you all about this. But the letter of Colossians was written around seven years after the letter to Philemon. Not only that, Colossae, if you remember, is the hometown of Philemon. <coughs> so, not only is um, Onesimus going back, if, if he went back to Colossae, that means he left. So he's going back and forth. He's moving around freely. <coughs> and not only that, he is publicly preaching the gospel and talking to the church in Colossae, the church that meets in Philemon's house. This runaway slave is going back to his master's hometown and preaching the gospel freely in his master's house. <coughs> what that tells me is that this slave, this bondservant, is no longer a bondservant. He's no longer a slave. Uh, he's no longer a slave, but as Paul says, he is a beloved brother. A brother in the gospel, a brother in the pursuit of the preaching of Jesus Christ. So he went from bondservant to brother. Wow. But not only that, um, there's this dude named Ignatius. You know, some of you go going to seminary. Ignatius is a guy you're going to learn about in your ancient church history class. Ignatius is one of like the early church writers. He like knew maybe the Apollo. I don't, I don't know. He's like really old, but he's not like biblical. But Ignatius, he's like one of the really, really early church fathers. Um, Ignatius of Antioch actually mentions in Onesimus in his letter to the church in Ephesus. And this letter was written before like 180. And this is what he says. Onesimus, whose love surpasses words in the flesh as your bishop, I pray that you may love him with a love according to Jesus Christ and that you may all be like him. For blessed is he who granted unto you, worthy as you are, to possess such a bishop. <coughs> if you don't know, a bishop is the head of a local church or a local presbytery or a local synod, like the area pastor. And so this Onesimus has gone from bondservant to brother to bishop. He's gone from a slave to the head of the church of Ephesus. Wow. How, how did this happen? How did Onesimus go from bondservant to brother to bishop? You can only assume 
that it was because of the change, the gospel change in Philemon's heart. That although he was within his rights, his legal rights, in that society and in that empire to punish, uh, punish Onesimus, to enact his wrath on Onesimus, rather, we can only assume that in his heart he sought to forgive Onesimus. He sought to bless Onesimus. And he sought to free Onesimus from his slavery. And so the question that I have as the praise team comes up <coughs> for us is in the middle of all of the cultural expectations and the relational expectations that we have in our lives, what will be the gospel change that occurs in our hearts? Who are the people in your lives that you need to forgive? Not by compulsion, not because Joe Bay told you to forgive that person, but because Jesus Christ is moving in your heart. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to bless? Who do you need to free? We're gonna spend a few moments pondering that question. And I want us to think very specifically. Who is the Onesimus in our lives? <coughs> who are the ones who have maybe hurt us? Who have wronged us? And yet still, we are called to love them, to bless them, to forgive them, and to free them. It might be a friend, a frenemy, an enemy. It might be our, someone in our family, someone who's left our enemy. It may be someone in this church, maybe this church, maybe an old church. Who do we need to free? 